with root words and vocabulary. I've been treating, that's how I've been treating my class this year is, you know, there's English and there's the other languages, but then there's math and we're all learning that. And everyone has a little bit of it. Everyone can come to me speaking a little bit of math, but kind of taking it as there's this common language that everybody's learning, it's been kind of fun. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. Before we dive into this week's episode, I wanted to take a moment to let you know about a scholarship opportunity for English learners. Since 2017, Elevation has awarded five $2,000 scholarships per year to deserving English learners so they may pursue their higher education. If you know an English learner who deserves a scholarship, visit the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community to find information on requirements, deadlines, and the application itself. As always, remember that Elevation has two L's. We're so excited to be able to provide this assistance to students who need it most. How can the challenges that teachers continue to face in remote classrooms lead to positive changes, particularly when it comes to facilitating discussions and practicing language? How can content teachers set their English learners up for success, both with accessing academic vocabulary and creating lower stakes entry points of participation for students? What tools, lessons, and takeaways from this year will be key in informing instruction and addressing where students are when we are back in the classroom? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with Christian Lindsay. Christian is a middle school math teacher and interventionist who works with a linguistically diverse group of students at Lively Middle School in Austin, Texas, a city she has called home for almost 30 years. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland has been a favorite of hers ever since she was the white rabbit in an elementary school play. She tells her students to stay curious like Alice, and she tells herself to be the adult that she needed when she was that age. The math is secondary in her room, and the relationships come first. As you'll hear in the interview, Christian takes a well-balanced approach to teaching math and language to a variety of students, something we can all learn from. Christian Lindsay, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. I'm excited to have you too. We've been doing this um, little series on uh, on math and English learners, which is a huge topic right now. And I'm really excited to be chatting with folks like you who are doing the work in the field. We talk with lots of experts and researchers, but at the end of the day, um, you and your colleagues are the ones making the impact. So happy to chat with you. So um, I want to start off by talking um, a little bit about how you've had to adapt as a math teacher with all the changes over the last year, and especially as it pertains to to working with um, your English learners. Um, I'm not sure if adapt is quite the right word here. Um, I feel like I've done a lot of failing forward because um, I don't really feel like I've adapted to this situation at all yet. Um, but we're, we're all kind of working at it. And, you know, anytime something doesn't work, it's okay. What was it? Where was the disconnect? Okay. So we're going to try this again, but we're going to step back, maybe try it a little differently, move forward. So there's been a lot of that this year of just, okay, that didn't work. What can we get out of it? So that's, that sounds kind of like a good thing, though. I mean, I feel like if I reflect back on my time teaching, I, 
that wasn't something that was necessarily um, encouraged failing forward. Uh, do, do you feel now like you have, like there's an advantage in that and there's the ability or maybe even encouragement to kind of fail and then learn and then pivot? I mean, that's kind of the way that my organization Elevation works in a lot of ways and a lot of organizations work. Yeah, um, it's been, as tough as this year has been, there have been a lot of perks. And I think in some ways, there's kind of been this acceptance that the kids are behind, which I can't stand that statement. Um, that's a whole other rant. Um, but I feel like I've had a little more freedom to do what I want to do this year, since there's this, you know, everyone's kind of flailing at what to do. And so I've sort of taken my class, my math class, and started treating it like a language class. So I have my English speakers, I have my English learners, and then I have everyone who is a math learner. So math has so many words in it and so many different meanings. And the fun thing is how many of those words relate to Spanish words. So because of the Latin roots, and mm -hmm. I really geek out over that with the kids. I'm like, hey, my kids, my kiddos who speak Spanish, y'all actually have an advantage that you don't quite realize yet. And so I love with root words and vocabulary. And so I've been treating, that's how I've been treating my class this year is, you know, there's English and there's the other languages, but then there's math. And we're all learning that. And everyone has a little bit of it. Everyone can come to me speaking a little bit of math, but kind of taking it as there's this common language that everybody's learning. It's been kind of fun. That's so refreshing to hear that. And I, I'm sure I'm not the only one thinking that our audience is primarily, you know, teachers who are working with English learners or Yale specialists or administrators. And to hear you say that you're treating your math class like a language class, you know, is it, really great to hear because I think that there has been traditionally a tremendous focus on learning math skills, right? Which obviously you can't really learn unless you have the language uh, to learn them. But I, I don't I don't know if everybody's on the same page there yet, unfortunately. So that being said, like I'm gonna I want to probe a little bit there. You're talking about treating your math class like a language class. Um, you know, there has to be focus on learning math skills, but how can we make space for class or group discussions? that provide opportunities to practice language skills? And, and how are you doing that in this weird setting that we're in now? Um, well, that's something that I always did. Um, I I drank the seven steps Kool-Aid. I know that's a later question, but- No, no, that's okay. You can get I, it to it I love the seven steps. And I, I have a poster that I created in my room. I look at it all the time. And so I use a lot of their strategies and the talking, with the kids, that's huge. And that's our colleague, John Seidlitz, by the way, who's who's yes. doing all the Seidlitz education is doing that work. Just a shout out. We've had a lot of those folks on the podcast, including Stephen Fleener, who recommended you to come on. So anyway, that's a bit of an aside. Um, I kind of forgot what I was saying. That's because I interrupted you. So <laughs> you're talking about the seven steps and as a way that it, you know, you're able to infuse language. So my kids would sit in groups and I would have them talk when we were all here and so that's a lot different when we're putting them into breakout rooms um, because I don't have that connection with them. And the shy kids who are shy to talk, when you put them in a breakout room, 
with other shy kids who don't want to talk, not much talking happens. And there's the real trick of this year is when they were in the room, I could build the relationships. I could get that anxiety level to come down and I could get them to speak to their peers. That's the biggest challenge this year is just getting them to talk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a totally different world. I've heard some people say uh, that there are some students who are sort of more willing to put themselves out there and talk in this remote environment, but it sounds like with your situation, that's certainly not the majority. No. Yeah. Really not. I was really hoping that the home environment would kind of help ease some of that anxiety, but it seems like it had the opposite effect Yeah. that I was hoping would happen. So that, that actually was an eye opener for me was thinking maybe maybe since they're home we might have a little more parental support and unfortunately not the case so many factors there with the home situation i mean i I like to think we have four children that are in all different learning situations from third to tenth grade and i'd like to think of myself as a longtime educator and someone who's passionate about education and lives in a you know fairly stable home i think that that it would be easier to do but it's even under the best of circumstances, it is not easy. Um, someone said it perfectly early this year. We, why are we having a Zoom meeting for parents who don't speak English, who don't know how to use Zoom? Yeah. And that's kind of what's been happening a lot. It seems like throwing lots of answers at problems that aren't necessarily the right answers. Right. Yeah, I think people are doing their best, but there's, you know, it's hard to hard to adjust. Um, another question about that that language piece and getting students to work in group discussions. Have you found any, um, you know, tech tools or strategies that have helped make math conversations number one happen remotely, um, and number two that might even make discussions better in that environment? Um. I wish I could say that I had. It's okay if you haven't. Um, I'm still working on, honestly, sometimes just getting them to say anything. Um, turning on a camera, we're getting better with that. Um, but there's just that level of shy and anxiety that we just still, in February, we still haven't seemed to, to get over. It's amazing because that was like, when we, when this whole thing happened, which is, you know, started almost a year ago. Now we, we did a series called look for the helpers where I basically put an invite to any teacher who worked with English learners to come on and just talk about the challenges that you're facing. And for months it it was, we need to get students to feel safe and feel less anxious and feel like they're ready to learn. And we're still dealing with that. Right. I mean, you're, that's exactly what you're saying is that we're in February. We, the hope was that you know, in the hierarchy of needs there, Maslow's would get to that comfort. And so students can learn, but it sounds like what you're saying is that there are still students who aren't comfortable. Is that a math specific thing? Or is that just a learning, ready to learn thing? I think it's everybody. Um, I've noticed in pretty much all grade level or content level meetings across the board, they're not, the cameras aren't on, they're not talking. It's hard, you know, I'm, it's hard to teach when they don't participate. So that's been, honestly, that's been the biggest challenge. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let's talk about something else that I'm sure is, I mean, it's going to be all challenges really. here. <laughs> that's kind of the nature of, of teaching these days. And we really appreciate the work that you're doing. I want to talk a little bit about assessment. Um, you know, formative assessment is, is obviously always has been critical to gauge each student's needs. Um, especially, you know, when they're learning now, they're learning in living circumstances are so heterogeneous. I mean, you just mentioned that, you know, you hope that the, the, the home life would make students more comfortable, but that's not necessarily always the case. That being said, when I think about formative assessment, I'm thinking about kind of like low stakes, less evaluative ways to, to kind of gauge students and figure out where they are. Um, not only gauge your skills, but even give them some confidence. What have you done uh, to try to accomplish that goal and, and what have been the results of those efforts? You know, this is this is the one I'm super happy about. And that oh, great. Is the Zoom chat. Um, I don't like this is something that will be incorporated in my room, in my class, even once we're completely all back. Um, it might not necessarily be Zoom, we won't need the video, but having that ability to chat with my kids, even the kids who never turn on their cameras and never say a word, they will still answer in the chat. And and giving them the ability to send that answer to me privately, there is suddenly that fear of there's no penalty for a wrong answer. And I and that's one of that key is something I have to really hit home with my kids in the beginning is y'all, I don't care if you get it wrong. Please get it wrong because then I know where I, I can figure out your mistake and then we can fix it. So that feeling that there won't be a penalty for wrong answers once we can kind of get over that. I love the Zoom chat because they they will answer in there. And I, I make a deal with them sometimes. Like if you send it to me privately and you get it correct, then you have to say it out loud. And that works sometimes because then they absolutely know that it's right. They have the confidence. Mm -hmm. And or if I don't say say it out loud, it'll be like, okay, then just copy paste send it to everyone because that is correct or i'll say oh that's right but now make it a complete sentence Yay, seven steps um in the chat so that's i have loved that that's been the quickest easiest way to do any kind of assessment um because even students in the room back in the day some would be shy to answer because they wouldn't want to get it they wouldn't want to get it wrong now i am literally the only one in the room that knows, and it's kind of nice. That's really interesting. That's a simple, obviously, tool that these days everybody is using, and I'm not sure how many people would think of it as a formative assessment tool. Um, and even more interesting is your idea about using it moving forward. And there are plenty of tools that we could use as back channels, assuming that that kids had some kind of device that they could use. Um, you know, and by back channel, I mean just a place where they can reach you individually, or if they want as the entire group. Um, and, you know, we're talking about assessment there, but I can't help also but think about your sort of stressing your math class as a language class. Is that also a way for them to kind of use some language or is that more quick? It's a little bit of both. Um, there are two places that they can communicate me with me typing. Uh, the Zoom chat is one. And then we also have our blend, which is AKA Canvas, but we call it blend. 
So anytime they answer a question in blend, they have to use a complete sentence. And I give them the sentence stems and word banks and they're really good about it. I'm really proud of them. Um, the chat is their one place where they're off the hook on a complete sentence. That's so great. So they have a place that's like just at low stakes. They don't have to worry about it. And but then they have the other place where the expectation is that, you know, they have to go a little deeper. Um, okay, that's great. I think that I, I'll bet you that there's a lot of people that are doing what you just mentioned, but I'll bet you there are a lot of people that don't and maybe we'll start. So that's nice. Because uh, we're all at this point using zoom most of us. Um, that chat is amazing. Because yeah, they can just type it in real quick or talk to each other. Sometimes I love watching them talk to each other. Yeah, it's great. Let's get into, so I, again, I've, I've said this like already five times, I think, but I love your focus on language. So I, I want to talk about, uh, given that sort of, um, you know, propensity you have to really teach math as a language or use language to teach math, what are some ways you have found to prepare English learners for upcoming math lessons? Um, especially like in those moments right before your instruction starts, whether it's, it's you know, especially if it's going to be asynchronous or unfacilitated. I mean, there's a few ways to do it. We always hear about, you got to activate background knowledge. Some people like to front load academic vocabulary, uh, spark curiosity, curiosity, excuse me. Um, and it seems like when I ask people this question or I have in the past, like these, the video, I'm going to, I show videos. That seems to be the, the go-to resource. Are there other ways that you have found to, to, to make that happen so that students come prepared to use the language that they need or at least understand it? Um, I'm not a video teacher, so I will use Good. my other time. ideas. When I, so my time in class with them is when I would use that. Um, I really like front loading that academic language. Um, especially I'm, I'm, I'm thinking constant and coefficient right now because that's what we were working on. And if they know you know, which the constant is on the X and the, the or sorry, the constant's not, doesn't have a variable and the coefficient does, you know, even if there's some of that English swirling around it that they're not quite getting in the lesson, they're gonna know the word, oh, coefficient is this number or the constant is this number. So because that will be in there, I also love tying in words. I, I say math like took that word. So like the word constant, you've heard that that is not a math word. You just use it. So I like to have them look up this word. What does this mean outside of math? What do you think of when you hear this word? If a teacher's constantly complaining, what's going on? And so kind of keying in, you know, why math picked this word is kind of fun. So when you don't have the, the Latin roots to go with, then you use things like it's a real word. Yeah, let me dig a little deeper there because it sounds like you're you're getting your uh, sort of gold standard is getting to the point where when the students are doing something with the math, they understand the academic vocabulary. You've front loaded it, and you gave a great example of looking a word up in a dictionary and it's kind of normal meaning constant being this one, and then kind of playing with it a little bit. What are you, how do you do, like, walk me through how you go about making sure that students know, was, was it constant and coefficient mm -hmm. before the stakes are higher and they need to use it like in a math problem? Um, we would do, 
I like doing like quick quizzes. Like if I would just have an example, like which one's the coefficient? And then everyone would be yelling four, which one's the constant? Everyone's yelling 11. And hopefully, you know, if they didn't already know it, they're starting to pick up on, there's only two numbers that we're looking at. One's the constant, one's the coefficient. And so it's, then they're saying the numbers, which they're a little more comfortable with. And then I can switch it around. So once I know, okay, I can use the language and they can give me the number. Then I'm like, then I give the number and they give me the language because now I know that they know how to identify it. So they might struggle with the word coefficient, but I'm going to help them out a little bit because that's in the middle. And for those people listening and that don't see the video, Christian is now, oh, Miss Lindsay is now holding up uh, a sign that says coefficient, but she's taken the word fish and put it in between so that you take it from here, Christian. So that what? So it's not spelled F-I-S-H. If you look it up in the dictionary, it doesn't look like it says coefficient. But then I hold this up with the kids and they're going to remember, oh, that post-it note. And so then when I say, okay, what's the four, then the kids say, oh, it's the coefficient. Because we've also gone through co-e-fish-ent. Co-e-fish-ent. So we've really gone through saying it. I like to set my kids up for success. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to ask my kids a question that they don't know. You know, I'm not going to ask them what's missing if it's something that they don't know. Yeah, let's go just try their confidence. Like when we were doing expressions, um, the thing that was missing was the equal sign. They know an equal sign. Right. So I'm not going to ask them what's missing and it's something that they don't. Oh, it's the absolute value sign. Y'all don't know that yet. <laughs> so you're spending, based on what you just showed me and the example you just walked through, you're spending a lot of time teaching academic language. I'm actually, I'm not a math teacher. Um, I'm not a core math teacher. So I'm an elective math teacher. So my kids range from really struggling to really high. So I blend, I say from rookie to rock star, it doesn't matter who you are, I will find a place in my class. Um, so they do tend to be the, the lower kids. So because I'm not core, I have the, the flexibility to really spend more time with the words and the meanings and hopefully when the core class gets back around to equations, my kids are just going to knock it out of the park. Yeah. You're lucky, you know, to be able to spend that time. I think that's great because there are certainly a lot of teachers who they don't, it's not that they don't want to teach it, but they don't have the time or the tools to be able to do it. And a lot of teachers are kind of forced to do that in an asynchronous environment to, to, put these lessons out there so that the kids can can try to learn it on their own and without a real structure and sort of a research-based setup it's it can be it can be challenging um well that's awesome thanks for walking through that i loved that little sign there i'm gonna have to include that video somewhere so folks can see it because that was amazing and if, if you're listening um christian is actually in her classroom which is awesome there's a little board behind her but uh, we'll find a way to get some video to folks um okay I I went with, the terms were blue the expressions are yellow, and when we get there, the equations are green because blue and yellow make green. I love it. Color-coded, a little art oh, blended in. All color-coded. The, the pink 
is the things that you think. The white is the words. Amazing. Steam, not STEM. Steam. There is definitely an A in there. Um, okay. What what are you what tools are you using? Um We've talked a lot about in, in class and you're doing clearly awesome things because you have that time and I'm going to call it a luxury. It sounds crazy now, it but really some, some people don't have that luxury now. What tools are students using outside of class, especially when there's a limited time for instruction? Um, my campus is using iReady. Um, that's kind of new. I'm not going to comment on it, on anything on that. Um, honestly, I wish my kids would just use flashcards. If my kids just knew their multiplication facts, that would solve so many of the problems because I watch them trip up on things like what's seven times six and they go 41. I'm like, you're really close, but it's 42 and that took way too long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the things that should be quick aren't. And I found that when the kids that do, use the flashcards outside of school and do you learn those multiplication facts it pays off huge dividends yeah those math problems don't take nearly as long because they're able to you know get through it a lot faster old school techniques techniques work unfortunately it seems like as time goes along that you know kids are expecting more in the war in the in the in the way of gamification and rewards and everything else so um it'd be cool if you had a tool that could be as uh engaging as the work that you're doing in class to teach them that i i laugh that i'm so old school that i'm like back around to where it's new the kids haven't seen it before right i know right i know i was just talking about cassettes with somebody recently the tapes you know and um Anyway, that's a story for another time. Oh, I love it. A little sticker of one. <laughs> I was talking about it in the context of I used to teach um, high school Spanish. I taught the AP course and the kids had to record themselves, much like the English learners do in the access testing or whatever you're in, you're in Texas. So their test there. Uh, but uh, but they had to do it on a tape. And this is even five years ago. And the kids were like, what is this thing? And how do how does this magic work? <laughs> it's incredible. One anyway. of my favorite memes is um, someone's holding up a floppy disk. It says, my kid just asked me why I 3D printed the save button. <laughs> I love it. That's fantastic. Oh, man, that's great. I'm glad we went into that, uh, that little, that little, yeah. we went down that road just for that, because I'm going to remember that one. Oh, Gen X, man. We're, we, we're it. Right. I know. I love it. I'm proud. Hi, everyone. I'm Teddy Rice president and co-founder of Elevation. The Highest Aspirations podcast was created to keep you informed and inspired around the issues that matter most to the students you serve. We'd love the opportunity to talk with you about how we can help strengthen your EL program. Reach out to us anytime at info at elevationeducation.com to set up a time to chat. Now, back to Highest Aspirations. Okay. Um getting back to math and English learners. Yeah. You're you're making the best of a difficult situation. I can tell that you're a positive, passionate person and just based on the stuff that you've shown me, you're doing great work in the classroom. But what do you wish you had to ensure that English learners had access to 
rigorous instruction both now and in the future? What would help you get them there? I think confidence. Um, because that's what the kids, that's what the teachers give the kids. Kids walk into our room and often lack confidence. And it's the teachers, you know, yes, you can, you know, support that will get them to take the risks to do the learning. But unfortunately, when you're at home, you know, that's, the teacher isn't there to really build that confidence up. And if you're lacking confidence, then I can, I can completely understand why you're not going to log into a class that you're going to be lost in. So I don't know. I don't really know how to give them confidence, but I guess all of the teachers are here. And if the kids would show up, we're here and we want you here. And whether it's in person or on Zoom, like, please show up, please. And it's okay if you're lost, it's okay if you're behind, which again, different rant, um, like everybody kind of is. And I understand the hesitation to log in because it would be that same nervousness as it would be going into school. So that's my show up guys, we're here. And we all want you to succeed. Yeah, confidence. And it sounds like the, a big problem with the confidence right now is just that remote environment. That's taking that mm -hmm. some of that confidence away. It's taking longer for students to, to, to become confident. Yeah. And that's probably resulting in something that you've talked about a lot uh, and said, I don't want to go down this road, but I, I think it's important that we do go down this road. And you've, you've used the word, you know, behind um, the, the, the research and the media is using the word or the expression learning loss over and over again. Um, is learning loss happening in your experience? Um, question one, question two, what, are you and your district and your school doing about it? Um, and how do you feel about the term? Um, I hate that term. It, it is happening, unfortunately. Uh, learning loss happens every summer. Learning loss happens over spring break. Okay, so yes, it happens. When kids aren't in school and they're not using it, it's going to kind of but it's kind of like riding a bike and once you're back in it, you're right back in it. So. You got to just stay on the bike. It sounds like mm -hmm. if possible. So using that metaphor, is there, are there any plans to keep the students on the bike throughout the summer or at least kind of get them to maybe where they were so that moving forward, they don't have this inability to ride the bike? to avoid using the expression that you don't right. like. <laughs> um, there, so to me, like the term, like they're behind. Okay, it's the, the timeline is a man-made construct mm -hmm. to begin with. So the kids aren't necessarily behind. They are where they are. Like stop making it sound like the pandemic, like it's having some academic issues, you know, sure, but it didn't 
mean they can't learn. So it's, I keep forgetting, Adam. <laughs> no, that's okay. I think what you said is 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 really is really poignant. I mean that the, the, the timeline is in fact a, 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 our own construct, and kids are going to learn at different rates. And you know, we talk a lot about personalization and differentiating instruction and competency based and different paths and blended and all these things. But at the end of the day, it's the teacher's responsibility to do that, and the teacher is overwhelmed, perhaps more so now than ever. The teacher perhaps doesn't have the tools that they need to make sure that they're differentiating appropriately and that they're personalizing appropriately. And so we have what we have. Am I on the right track there? Absolutely. Um, and it's not like the teachers don't know that the kids have kind of, you know, not had school for a year, even though we've been all we've all been trying. Um, so I don't think the learning loss learning loss is as bad as they're making it out to seem because it's not like we're not trying. Um, and the kids are surviving a pandemic. Right. They're learning a whole lot of stuff that they would not have been learning before. So you know what? There's no learning loss because they're learning other stuff. Yeah, it's a great point. Same thing with that whole being behind. I'm like, they're surviving a pandemic and doing their best in school and they're living through history. So if we need to recalculate their graduation date, big deal. Like that's really all it comes down to. And when the kids come back and things, we all know that we all kind of need to go back about a year, you know, you can't be behind if we all stopped at the same point. Yeah, that's a great and, point. And I know that, you know, some students have access to things that are going to keep them on track and keep their graduation date, you know, where it was. But again, if we need to recalculate a graduation date by a year or make a really big plan to keep you on track for that four-year plan, then that's what we're going to do. Because again, everyone is in this boat. No one is unaware of what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, everyone's in the same, or maybe everybody's in a different boat in the same stormy sea. Ah, I've actually <laughs> said that one a lot. You know, I mean, it's because uh, they're all learning at different rates. Um, that was great. I really appreciate your your candor and vulnerability there. Um, you you just mentioned, you know, eventually we're going to all go back in some way or the other. When we do, as we think about going back to school on a more permanent basis. What is your take on teachers and technology? Do you think that people are going to back off because it's like, I've done, I just can't do this anymore um, and I don't want to do it? Or are they going to double down on things like you talked about earlier, that simple Zoom feature? I guess I'd ask you personally what you're going to do. And then I'd love you to give more global prediction about what you think is going to happen. I think that everyone is going to use more technology than they did prior to March of 2020. Um, but I don't think there's going to be nearly as much as there is now. Um, is that a good thing or a bad thing? That's a, I think that's a good thing. Um, okay. I think the kids are technology overwhelmed at this point. And when I bust out with things on a whiteboard with magnets and dry erase boards, I have the attention of everyone in the room because they're not looking at a screen. And that's powerful. 
old school is you know because you don't learning is is a two-way street you can't just watch a video and and learn it there has to be some form of communication i tell my kids i'm like i watch a lot of football but i'm not gonna even try out for a football team because i couldn't do it i can watch it so hey guys y'all kind of need to participate here because it's the same thing just because you watch it doesn't mean you get it yeah i love it um so you mentioned i want to wrap up with a couple one more specific question than a couple that i like to ask everybody who comes on um you you mentioned the zoom chat piece, having a back channel that, um, you know, the students can use. You, you think that that's a great tool that you didn't use before that you want to continue using. Is there anything else that you've done differently, particularly for those English learners uh, this year that you're going to continue to do differently as we move forward, thinking about silver linings here or is Zoom that the big one? Um, I think that might be the big one. Um having that ability to communicate with just me and no one else in the room, even though everyone else is in the room is, is huge with lowering that anxiety. Yeah, I'm hoping, actually, I'm kind of hoping that my district, um, when everything goes back, allows the option to stay home because some kids are doing just fine at home and I would have no problem with kids in my room and kids at home and we can do this all together because then it's going to look, it's going to reduce the number of kids on campus. And fewer kids on campus, the more love there is to go around basically. Um, the ones who are here this year are, they're, they're awesome. And they're all, they're, we're like, we're so supported and everyone, no, we can go to, and it's amazing to hear that. And so if we could use the technology to solve the problem that we've been, that we've had forever, which is our classes are too big, you know, if we have that, if we have a possible answer to that, let's use it. Yeah. And I appreciate you mentioning two, one that is completely in your control, just to have a back channel in your particular class. And one that's a little bit more higher level that would require a little bit more logistical and administrative kind of planning, which is to, to give some, to give students the option to stay home if they wanted to, and how would that work? And that's a whole other conversation for another time. I, I'm definitely interested in talking more about that because that's really uh, interesting. And I, I'm not sure that every teacher feels the way that you do about being able to manage that. Probably not. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we all have our own opinions, That's but right. I'm also willing to bet that a bunch probably would. You, you, I think well. you're right. Enough, enough to, to make it work and enough to, to sort of be able to say, we have this critical mass of people who can do this. Here's how you do it. Get other people on board. Um, and it works better with some classes over others. Simply, I mean, like, I know that the arts teacher is... You know, it, it's kind of hard to teach watercoloring to students who may or may not have the watercolors themselves. So I get that, you know, it doesn't work for every class. So, but it works for some. Right. Great. Well, I want to move on to two questions that I ask everybody. The first one is, um, is there a book or other resource that's either influenced you personally or professionally that you'd like to share? Um, 
professionally, um, I'm a big fan of the seven steps and capturing kids' hearts. Uh, those are the two professional developments that if I was sent back to, I would not grumble because building the relationships with the kids and then showing me what to do once I'm there, like those two just go really, really well together. Um, is, capturing, first, is Capturing Kids' Hearts, is that a book? Or is that, did you a, say? It, I, think there's, I think there is a book out there, but it's this massive group. Um, my old district had people come and train us on it. And it's, it's how to build relationships. Great. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to clarify. And then you had another. And then on a personal note, um, my book is Alice in Wonderland. Um, that's been ever since I was a little kid, my mom called me her little Alice because I was just curious about everything and scheming and always getting into something. And that's what I, I tell my kids. I'm like, stay curious, you know, go, go, go try it. What's yeah. the worst that could happen? You get it wrong, big deal. We'll figure it out. I love it. If I had some time, I bet I could have predicted that book. If, we, if I had a little bit more time, that would have been yours. I. It's funny you mentioned that because that's a book that I read. I feel like I read it when I first got to college at, at one point after having read it maybe earlier. And now I feel like I need to um, I need to read it again. There's, oh, yeah, I love it. Yep, there's so... I have- I have so much Alice in Wonderland stuff. I'm here that, you know, kids draw pictures for me and I keep Yeah, it so in. for those of you who aren't getting the video, Christian again is, is giving us a nice tour of the room with some Alice in Wonderland art and we'll find a way to get that video out. Man, so, I love it that you're in your classroom and that you're showing us this video. That's, so, wow, there is a tremendous amount of art, especially, this is going to sound stereotypical, but especially for a math class. That's great to see. Those are all picture frames. Awesome. And... They, I, I have them falling up my wall and every frame is either a picture of a kid or a piece of art from a kid. It's great. Great. Again, putting the A in steam. It's that relationship piece. You know, you, you can't do, you can't learn until there's the relationship. I mean, I remember the teachers I didn't have a relationship with, you know, I went to their class. I did what I had to. It was kind of like, you know, it was very mechanic, but the teachers that I had relationships with were the ones I remembered and cared about. And then I worked harder in their class because I didn't want to disappoint them. So that's, that's what I try to do is build those relationships with the kids so that they're not as nervous because I'm not going to point and laugh at a wrong answer. We're going to figure out what you went wrong and then point you in the right direction. I like using the example, um, if a friend is coming over and they call you and they say, I'm lost, the first thing you're going to say is, where are you? And if they say, well, I'm still at my house, then you're going to be like, you're not lost. You're still at home. You haven't gone anywhere. And I say, that's when you don't give me an answer. You can't tell me you're lost yet. But if they give me an answer and it's wrong, okay, now you can tell me you're lost because you've actually gone somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so that's, I use that metaphor with my kids a lot. And they'll be like, I'm lost. I'm like, mm, no, you're not. You, you haven't left the house yet. You're not lost. Go get lost and then I'll come find you. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, I, we've come full circle back to the relationship piece, which I think is great because that is now and always the most important element of uh, kids uh, learning anything and being successful. 
Um, and you've given us a lot to think about, uh, Christian, which I really appreciate. Can people contact you if they have questions? And if so, how would they go about doing that? Sure. Um, my work email is christian.lindsay at austinisd.org. Um, do I, should I spell my name out? No, because I'll put it right in the, sh- in the, in the, sh- actually you should, why not? Yeah, go ahead. So Christian is K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N dot Lindsay, L-I-N-D-S-E-Y. My parents thought naming me Christian and spelling it with a K would be more girly. It, yeah, just kind of wound up being <laughs> spelled all the time. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those names you probably always have to ask for the pronunciation. I know I did, but um but yeah, and we'll include that email as well as the links to the books that you mentioned in the show notes. And um, with that, Christian, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for, as I said earlier, your candor, your, your vulnerability, um, your ideas, which are simple and actionable, which are always the best kind of ideas. And clearly your passion for the work you're doing. I think we need more people like you to teach math in all courses. So thanks so much. Thank you. It was amazing to be here. And yeah, I hope I get to talk to you again. Um, I'm always interested in someone who was willing to listen to my rambling, crazy math ideas. (laughs) It's not rambling or crazy, but listening, I'm definitely happy to do. I'm glad that that's kind of part of my job here and amplifying voices like yours. So thanks again. Really appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.